The following message was recorded at Fountain of Life Fellowship in Fountain Valley, California. For more information, visit www.folfcrc.com. Let's uh, go to the Word of the Lord in prayer. It's an honor to be uh, standing before you preaching the Word of God to you. And let's go to the Lord in prayer. Father in heaven, we thank you for your Word. We thank you for revealing yourself in the pages of Scripture. You speak to us through your word. And we ask that your uh, word will be preached faithfully today. And, and Lord, I certainly need your help in that. There's a wonderful passage, a passage about leaders, preachers, and, and Father, I, I need your help to, to pray this, this passage uh, according to what your truth is and, and uh we pray that you'll be glorified and pleased with it. We pray for the Holy Spirit to fill us and guide us. We pray that you will prepare our hearts to receive the truth of what your word says. Give us understanding. May we take your word to heart. And it's in your name we pray. Amen. Amen. Uh, I encourage you to open your Bibles to Hebrews 13, verse 7. Um, I invite you to follow along in your Bible, especially so that you can... Uh, just verify that what I'm saying is actually there. If you don't have a Bible, uh, and things mentioned to you, please take this Bible as our gift to you. Leadership in a church is very important. Would you agree? Church leaders have the responsibility to pray for, teach, and watch over the people that make up the congregation. The responsibility to live out their Christian faith, live it out faithfully and with integrity, and to lead others to do the same. They also have a responsibility to manage the church resources wisely. Can you see how important it is to have good, godly Christian leaders in your church? Hopefully, we have a pretty good here at Fountain of Life. And I'm sure, pretty sure we can all think of examples of bad Christian leaders. You know, some can be overbearing and domineering or self-serving, and some could be in it for the money or the notoriety. Bad leadership can cause disarray in a church. A lot of people have been hurt in the church due to the actions of bad leaders. I'm sure we all know some people have been hurt. Maybe that's you yourself, and that's you, I'm glad you're here. I hope we can find healing and reconciliation. So it's very important. I mean, church leadership is difficult, and it's very important that we have good church leadership. Because when leaders and the people are unified, it's, it's a beautiful thing. It's a beautiful thing. So we are finding our, fishing up our study in the book of Hebrews, and here in our passage, we're going to see a guide for how for the relationship between leaders and the people. We're going to see a guide for how we should relate to each other, how we should interact. So how should church leaders and the people relate with one another in the local church? Well, we're going to see three things. We're going to see how church leaders and the church work together to grow in pleasing Jesus. We're going to see how church leaders and the church together look to the true leader, Jesus Christ, and we're going to see how church leaders and the church value one another as they value God's word together. Let's look at this again, once again. 
How should church leaders and their people relate with one another in local church? First, church leaders in the church work together to grow in pleasing Jesus. Church leaders and the church together look to the true leader, Jesus Christ. And third, church leaders and the church value one another as they value God's word. So here's our first point. Church leaders and the church work together to grow in pleasing Jesus. So we need to work together to do what it says in verse 21. Let's take a look. Verse 21 says, Equip you with everything good that you may do his will, working in us that which is pleasing in his sight, through Jesus Christ, to him be glory forever and ever. Amen. So the Christian desire is to work to please Jesus. And the phrase, equip you with everything good, it conveys the idea of bringing someone into the proper condition. It means to bring someone to a state of full maturity. So Christians, therefore, are on a path which will, by God's grace, mature them in order to do his will. And one of the ways for the church and the leaders to work together to grow and glorifying God or pleasing God is, as verse 17 points out, obey your leaders and submit to them. Now, obey your leaders. What does this mean? Does this mean that leaders can demand that you wash their car and pull weeds from the yard? No, of course not. That's silly. That would be a sign of a bad leader. Would you agree? Yeah, but we want to obey and submit appropriately. So leaders in this instance, in our passage, it actually means guide. So imagine going to a place of interest, and you have a tour guide. And a good tour guide, a good guide, they would study and get to know this place of interest. So a good guide will show you the best things to see. They'll tell you the history of the place or the event. They will point out things or show you things that you may not have noticed if you look at it on your own or went there by yourself. And good leaders in the church are similar. They explore and study the Word of God. They teach us and explain to us the Word of God. But unlike tour guides, leaders in the church are also to be an example of the Christian faith and of Christian life. See, the Word of God encourages us to imitate our spiritual leaders. Take a look at Hebrews 13.7. A little bit earlier in our passage, it says, Remember your leaders, those who spoke to you the word of God. Consider the outcome of their way of life and imitate their faith. See, ultimately, leaders and the people are to imitate the faith of their spiritual leaders. For instance, the Apostle Paul encourages his, leaders, or his uh, readers to imitate him. In, first, in 2 Thessalonians 3, 7, he says, For you yourselves know how you ought to imitate us. And then Paul goes on to show and, and tell us how he, ought, or how, he, how he behaved and how he lived amongst them. And he follows it up in 2 Thessalonians 3, 9. He says he did all this to give you in ourselves an example to imitate. So leaders are to be example in the Christian faith so that we can also grow in the faith. Leaders will go before the congregation in prayer and into the word of God and into the Christian life. So to obey your leaders means to obey your leaders' teaching regarding the word of God. But what does it mean to submit to them? Submitting to your leaders simply means that, maybe not simply, but it means that you're going to accept their teaching. 
So our attitude should be that our leaders have taught me that the Bible is the Word of God. They have explained the Word of God to me. I've accepted it, and thus I will live out my life according to the Word of God. And so why should we submit to them? Verse 17 continues, For they, meaning the leaders, the leaders are keeping watch over your souls. And this is why you submit to your church leaders. They're keeping watch over your souls. Throughout the entire letter, our author was keeping watch over the souls of his readers. Now remember who the author's audience is. These are marginalized Jewish Christians suffering persecution for their faith in Christ Jesus. They were being ostracized, shunned from society. They were thrown in prison. The audience was certainly familiar with the Old Testament and the Jewish religion and rituals. And considering the suffering and the persecution, the desire to turn back to Judaism and away from Jesus must have been strong. The desire to turn back to the Levitical priesthood and a system of sacrifices was probably looking pretty good to them. After all, the, the temple was still there. The priests were still doing their thing. And turning back appeared to be a way to relieve the suffering and the persecution that they were experiencing. But our author, using Scripture, using the Word of God, while watching over their souls, informs them that that system is obsolete. It's been fulfilled. It's been replaced with something better. The old system was just a shadow of what's to come. But the new system is something glorious. It's something eternal. The new system or covenant was centered around Christ Jesus. He taught them that Christ Jesus is superior to any angel or priest, superior to Moses, superior to the tabernacle, superior to the Levitical priesthood and the sacrificial system. Jesus fulfills it all. He is the real thing. He is both the substance and the shadow. And little did they know that in a few short years, 70 A.D. to be exact, the temple and all their traditions and sacrifices would be destroyed. They would have turned back to nothing. And that's what's sad when people turn from faith in Jesus. They turn away to nothing. So a leader is called to keep watch over the souls of the people. The Bible says they are called to shepherd the people of God. Leaders shepherd from God's word. Let's take a look at 1 Peter 5, starting in verse 1. So I exhort the elders among you, as a fellow elder, and this is uh, Peter speaking, and a witness, as a fellow elder, and a witness of the suffering of Christ, as well as a partaker in the glory that is, to, that is going to be revealed, shepherd the flock of God that is among you, exercising oversight, not under compulsion, but willingly, as God would have you not for shameful gain, but eagerly, not domineering over those in your charge, but being examples to the flock, not domineering over those in your charge, but being examples to the flock. Probably could have saved a lot of time and just read this and said what I've already said. But this is what good leaders want to do. They want to watch over the church and leading them to the word of God. The major way leaders shepherd is by preaching the word of God. 2 Timothy 4.2 points out, exhorts 
shepherds and preachers, preach the word. Be ready in season and out of season. Reprove, rebuke, and exhort with complete patience and understanding, or complete patience and teaching. Now, unfortunately, too many preachers fail to do this. I had the opportunity of hearing a sermon by a man named H.B. Charles, and he taught a message called the message of the cross. In this message, he told of a church that had a sign outside that said, we preach Christ crucified. And over the years, the vine would grow up over this wall and eventually covered up the last word of that sign. And the sign simply said, we preach Christ. Then over the years, unbeknownst to the congregation, the vine continued to grow and it covered up the second last word of that sign, and the sign simply said, we preach. Now, Mr. Charles calls that a sad parable of the contemporary church. And unfortunately, too many teachers, preachers will take a verse of the Bible out of, you know, as with a pair of tweezers, basically. And instead of preaching God's word, they use that verse to launch into their pet peeves. They'll claim to give a talk that actually matters to the listeners' lives, and I, I hope this talk matters to your lives, but some won't even call their speech a sermon because that's too churchy. But the discerning listener will ask, what did that verse have to do with the wonderful talk I just heard? The discerning listener will also ask, where was the part about Christ being crucified? Where was the gospel of Jesus Christ? so important to teach the Word of God. It's so important to preach the gospel. Now, do leaders do this perfectly? No, of course not. They're not infallible. We're not infallible. No one is. We, but we rely on the grace of God. Good, solid Bible teachers can have different views on various texts, and that's why we encourage you to open a Bible while you're listening to a sermon. You need to follow along. Don't just take the preacher's word for it. Make sure the Bible actually says what the preacher is preaching. And I, by God's grace, it will happen today. And ask questions. We love questions. As iron sharpens iron, we can grow together in the Word of God in our Christian walk. We do it, and we do this by discussing and chewing on God's Word. Because leaders are called to watch over the souls of the congregation by preaching the Word of God. And leaders keep over, watch over their souls, as verse 17 continues, as those who will have to give an account. Now, this is a sobering collection of words. As James 3.1 says, Not many of you should become teachers, my brothers, for you know that we who teach will be judged with greater strictness. I mean, the, the preacher, the teacher will have to stand before God and explain, what did you do with the people I gave you to lead? And unfortunately for many churches, the leaders, because they don't preach the gospel of Jesus Christ, are sending people, in my opinion, to hell sober and out of debt, but not out of debt to God. And God forbid that should ever be said of leaders of Fountain of Life. The true Christians, they do not serve for their own benefit, but for the congregation. They're thinking and praying about our spiritual well-being and how to better equip us for the work of ministry. And in response, we should help them in obedience and faith. 
Verse 17 continues, Let them do this with joy and not with groaning, for that would be of no advantage to you. Now, nothing brings a church leader more joy than when the people follow and obey their teaching from the Word of God. And doing this, it brings joy and harmony when people follow the leader's teaching. And when they, when the, when they conform their lives to the Word of God. <clears throat> Occasionally, that won't happen. Occasionally, someone will not follow the Word of God. And I, I can tell you from experience that it's a groaning to leaders. It's sad, but you know, the leader will be overcome with the joy of a congregation that overall does follow God's word and does submit their lives to Christ. There's joy for the pastor who can't wait for, to fellowship and worship God in the, with the people. He can't wait to preach and teach. There's joy for the people as they fellowship with God together to worship and hear from God's word through preaching and teaching and growing in God's word and therefore working towards holiness. To not follow leaders' teaching, what does it say? It leads to what? It leads to groaning. Groaning. What is groaning? Groaning, a low, mournful sound uttered in pain and grief. It's a manifestation of mental and spiritual distress. There's despair. Ugh! Just wanted to end. And church becomes a drudgery then. Who wants that? See, there's no advantage to you to not obey the leader's teaching. Our passage illustrates the importance of being in a local church. I mean, there's so many people that don't go to church and have no leaders. And there are a few things more joyful than being part of a unified, godly local church that is centered on the gospel. You need to be in church. Looking back to Hebrews 10, verse 25, it says, And let us consider how to stir up one another to love and good works, not neglecting to meet together, as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another, and all the more as you see the day drawing near. So as the leaders encourage the people, the people encourage the leaders. They're stirring each other up with love and good works, which leads to joy. Again, the leaders are to be guides into the word of God and into the Christian life, practicing what they preach and setting a godly example. And they do this as one who bears the authority and responsibility of building up the saints. And of course, we all rely on the word of God. I'm sorry, on the grace of God. Word of God, yes, but we all rely on the grace of God. Paul, who wrote over half the New Testament, as great as he was, says in 2 Corinthians 2.16, regarding teaching God's word, he said, who is sufficient for such things? And this is Paul saying this. And that's why our author goes on to say, pray for us. Pray for us. Because as church leaders in the church work together, grow and please in Jesus, as church leaders in the church look together to the true leader, Jesus Christ. How do they look to Jesus? They look to him through prayer. Looking down at verse 18 of our text, says, pray for us. For we are sure that we have a clear conscience, desiring to act honorably in all things. I urge you the more earnestly to do this than order that I may be restored to you the sooner. So as leaders, pray for the people. The people need to pray for the leaders because 
Prayer is the greatest ministry that anyone can offer for an elder or a deacon. And while our author says he is sure that we have a clear conscience desiring to act honorably in all things, he recognizes his need for prayer so that he may remain faithful, so that he may continue to have a clear conscience, so he may continue to act honorably in all things. Failure to pray for your leaders shows a lack of realization of the importance of prayer for the church. and also shows a lack of realization of the frailty of the leader's sinful nature. Remember, leaders are sinners, saved by grace, just as you are. And church leaders, as under-shepherds, are still sheep. We still follow the great shepherd. And all leaders have skeletons in the closet. Therefore, we all need to pray for our leaders against spiritual attack, against the normal dangers of life, and to remain strong and upright, to have a clear conscience, and to act honorably in all things. I wonder how many Christian leaders fell in part due to lack of prayer. So pray, pray, pray for your leaders. And asking prayer, after asking prayer for leaders, our author bursts out in prayer to the true leader. Here we see a prayer to God on behalf of the author's readers. Again, the people are called upon to pray for the leaders. Leaders are called upon to pray for the people. And our, our, our author here prays the most powerfully worded blessings in all of Scripture. It's a prayer that shows a passion our author has for his readers. It shows his concern for his spiritual growth and it stresses the major components that make such growth possible. Let's take a look at verse 20. Now, may the God of peace, who brought again from the dead, dead our Lord Jesus, the great shepherd of the sheep, by the blood of the eternal covenant, equip you with everything good that you may do his will, working in us that which is pleasing in his sight, through Jesus Christ, to whom be glory forever and ever. Amen. Again, purpose of our author to write this letter was to exhort the people to stand firm in their faith in Jesus and, and to live in a manner pleasing to the Lord. After exhorting his audience, he knows that the people, as well as himself, cannot live in a manner pleasing to God on their own. He appeals to God knowing that we need God. We need God to equip us with everything good to do his will. God must do it. We can't do it on our own. God must do it. We need God to work in us that which is pleasing to his sight. And he will. He will. And this is as true today as it was when this letter was written. What will enable people to live lives that stand apart from the world? What will enable people to live their lives that are pleasing to God? What will enable people to do his holy will? What is going to stop you from living for yourselves and instead loving people as God commands? What will enable you to rely on God to live a devout life? What will enable you to be holy? Will human effort alone do these things or enable these things? I think we know the answer to that question. No, no, God has to work in us. God has to work in us, and the good news is he will. He will. We will see the same power that raised Jesus from the dead is the same power that changes us. So let's take a look. 
our author calls upon who? He calls upon the God of peace. Peace, the God of peace. God is the author and giver of peace. God is called a God of peace throughout the New Testament. Here's just one example from Paul, Romans 15, 33. And it says, may the God of peace be with you all. Amen. See, it is peace that God seeks even though the world rages against him. We don't have a distant and aloof God. We have a God that's intimately involved, intimately involved in his creation, intimately involved in our lives. We have a God of peace. A God who brings peace and reconciliation to an undeserving people. And our author is praying for peace for a people in the midst of turmoil. And how does God bring peace? He brings it through the reconciliation that comes through Jesus Christ in his death and his resurrection. God brings peace through the blood of his only son, Jesus. So you see how leaders and people look to each other. They pray for each other. And then verse 20, it says, Now may the God of peace who brought again from the dead our Lord Jesus, the great shepherd of the sheep, it is through faith in Jesus that we can find true peace. And here we find Jesus is called the great shepherd of the sheep. Jesus is commonly referred to as a shepherd, and that's why I call him the true leader. He is our true leader. He's our shepherd. He leads us. He guides us. This is a shepherd. Shepherd is someone who tends and herds and feeds and guards a flock of sheep and guides them. But Jesus takes being a shepherd a step further. We look at John 10, 11, it says, I am the good shepherd. This is Jesus speaking. I am the good shepherd. The good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. Jesus, as you know, laid down his life for the sheep. And who are the sheep? Well, sheep are those who repent of their sins and trust in Christ. And knowing we have a shepherd, a good shepherd, that brings us peace. And how does God bring peace? By the blood of the eternal covenant. So what is the eternal covenant? Well, I believe the eternal covenant is in reference to the new covenant. The main concern of Hebrews was to contrast the old covenant with the, old, with the new covenant. So our author uh, proclaims the superiority of the new covenant to the old. So the old covenant is obsolete, it has come to an end. The new covenant is eternal, it goes on, it never ends. Seven times in the Old Testament, the new covenant is called the eternal covenant. And given our author's efforts to show how the new covenant has fulfilled and replaced the old covenant, it would be strange to think that the eternal covenant would refer to anything else than the new covenant. We also see here the promise of the blood of the new covenant. And this, of course, is whose blood? It's the blood of Jesus. Hebrews 9.10 says that Jesus entered once for all into the holy place by his own blood, thus securing eternal redemption. Therefore, is the blood of Jesus, which is the blood of the new covenant, which established eternal redemption. Jesus paid for our sins, and that payment is eternally effective. So is Jesus. Jesus. 
the one who is a radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature, the one who upholds the universe by the word of his power, the great shepherd of the sheep, came as a man and lived a life fully pleasing to God the Father. There was not one moment in his life where he did not honor and please and worship God the Father as he deserves. And Jesus willingly was hung on a cross in our place, in our place. The ones who have not once ever loved or honored or worshiped God as he deserves. Is on that cross, the God the Father, the Holy One, separated himself from his Son. Jesus, hanging on the cross, separated from his Father, cries out, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And then God the Father proceeds to slaughter his son. He crushes him. I should have been you on the cross. I should have been me on the cross. Jesus did this for you. Jesus did this for me. The lifeless body of Jesus with all of our sins was wrapped in cloths and placed in a tomb, which is then sealed. And praise God, that is not the end of the story. Because three days later, our glorious Lord, our Lord Jesus, he rose from the dead, leaving our sins behind in the grave. This is the eternal covenant paid for by the precious blood of Christ. We've been purchased by his blood. We've been washed clean by his blood. We are, not his, we are not our own. And this is the gospel by which we have all been saved. The same God who raised Jesus will equip you then with everything good that you may do his will. He's working in us that which is pleasing in his sight. Using the same power he used to resurrect Jesus, which is a resurrection power. God equips us through Jesus Christ. Our author continuously proclaims surpassing greatness of Jesus Christ. In verse 20 it says, The source of our, our salvation comes from the blood of Jesus, and it is from Jesus that we gain all things from God. We gain the righteousness of Christ. Our author prays that Christians will be empowered to do his will through Jesus, our great shepherd, whom is also called the great high priest in Hebrews 4.14. As Jesus, who is able to save to the utmost those who draw near to God through him, since as a great high priest, he always lived to make intercession for them. To Jesus be glory forever and ever. Amen. We love to praise him here at Thought and Alive. So how should leaders and the people relate to one another within the local church? Well, first we've seen that they work together to grow in pleasing Jesus. Second, we've seen that in prayer, they look to the true leader, Jesus Christ. So they work together to grow in pleasing Jesus. In prayer, they look to the true leader, Jesus Christ. And our third point is, church leaders and the church value one another as they value God's word together. Now we reach the final greetings of the book of Hebrews. Hebrews 13.22 says, I appeal to you, brothers, bear with my word of exhortation, for I have written to you briefly. Now one, at first one may chuckle when the author says he's written to you briefly. 
But in actuality, this letter, which reads like a sermon, can be read within an hour. And it was brief, because there are places in, in, in this letter where he said, you know, I have many more things to tell you, I just don't have time. So the important part to see here is his appeal for them to bear with his word of exhortation. Our author wants them and us to take to heart what he has written. Our author has written incredible things. And throughout his letter, he explains the Old Testament scriptures predicted the coming of Jesus. He showed how the new covenant offered by Christ is always God's plan for redemption and salvation. The rituals of the sacraments of the Old Covenant were meant to symbolize the perfect work of Jesus Christ on our behalf. He wrote these things because he loves them. He loves them dearly. He wants them to take to heart what he's taught them, believe it, and recognize that this is worth dying for. It's worth dying for. Our author shows how much he values God's people. His love for his audience was displayed throughout the exhortation to them. I mean, after all, he knows them personally. He longs to be reunited with them. We don't know why they're apart, but they are, and he longs to be reunited with them. Our author shows his love by washing over their souls, by teaching them God's word and pleading with them to stay steadfast in faith in Christ Jesus. He says, cling to Jesus. Do not turn away. Listen, learn, and obey God's word. And he shows his love by praying for them. Secondly, he lets them know that others are praying for them as well and sending them their greetings. He's valuing God's people means that we ought to care and minister to other Christians. Hebrews 13, 23 says, we should know, you should know that our brother Timothy has been released. Timothy's in prison. He's been released. With whom I shall see you if he comes soon. Greet all your leaders and all the saints. Those who come from Italy send you greetings. Now the point is that Christians need to care for each other. Whether we're together or apart, we need to care, we need to pray. Here we see Timothy, who's more than likely Paul's aide. He's going to meet up with our author. And our author lets them know, hey, we're coming to see you. We can't wait. And the people from Italy, you know them. You know who I'm talking about. They're thinking of you. They're praying for you. Church leaders in the church value one another, value God's word together while relying on grace. And what is Grace. Grace is unmerited favor towards the undeserving. It's an ongoing benevolent act of God working in us. And we are partakers of grace together. His grace enables church leaders and the church to grow together in pleasing Jesus. His grace allows church leaders and the church together to look to the true leader, Jesus Christ. And his grace enables church leaders and the church to value one another as they value God's word together. And may final life grow in following this model. May we work together to grow in pleasing Jesus for his glory. May we look to him together as, a, as our great shepherd to hold one another up in prayer. May we value one another as we value God's word together. That Jesus may be glorified. Grace be with you all. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for this incredible book. 
We pray that we may take to heart the words written in your word. We thank you for the wonderful work of our great high priest, our great shepherd who laid down his life for the sheep. We ask that you continue to equip us to do your work, do your will, working in us that which is pleasing your sight. We pray that we'll continue to pray for each other, growing in love for you, for your word, and for each other, that Jesus may be glorified. Amen. Thank you for listening. And we invite you to visit us Sunday mornings here at Fountain of Life Fellowship. For more information, visit www.folfcrc.com.